Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Barris Age Institute colleague, Ed Kless. On today's show, folks, we have former Reagan senior speechwriter, Joshua Gilder, who wrote the speech that you just heard a part of. <laughs> hey, how's it going, Ed? Other than the chills I just got by listening to the speech again and having the author uh, w- present with us, I'm doing great. Yeah, I know. This is great. Well, let me read Joshua Gilder here uh, into the show. Sir, he served as President Reagan, uh, Sir President Reagan, the senior speechwriter from early 85 until mid-1988. And he is a founding director of the White House Writers Group. In 1989, he was appointed by President George Bush to, to be Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Human Rights leaving in 1991 to help David Rockefeller write his autobiography. He's written two books, Ghost Image, which is a medical novel, uh, intrigue novel, and uh, published in 2002, and his scientific history of the dramatic collaboration of Johannes Kepler and Tycho Brahe, Heavenly Intrigue, which was published in 2004, and he wrote wrote that with his, his wife. So, Joshua, welcome to The Soul of Enterprise. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Oh, it's an honor to have you. So tell us, <laughs> how did you, I know you attended Sarah Lawrence College. You studied <laughs> literature and music. How'd you end up in the White House? And uh, painting and theater. Painting, okay. Ed, Ed's also theater. So I'm <laughs> sure you guys will have lots to talk about. Well, it's a story. I am... Um, you know David Horowitz, who wrote Radical yes, Sonnet? Well, absolutely. He describes himself and others that he knew as um, red diaper babies. You know, their parents were communists. They would send their kids to communist youth camps and that sort of thing. I was more of a pink diaper baby. Um, not quite so extreme. Never went to communist youth camp. But, you know, my grandfather was a labor union leader. He founded the uh, Transport Workers Union. Uh, with Mike Quill, his name was Austin Hogan in New York City, famously communist union, um, blackballed in the fifties. Uh, he, uh, my, my mother would insist whenever I would um, kid her about it that she wasn't a communist. She had not joined the party, uh, but all of her friends were. So I came out of that, um, started at the age of fifteen with my friends. The um, uh, our local high school chapter of Students for a Democrat Society um, was, uh, I had members of the, remember what the Domestic Peace Corps was? Mm, mm-hmm. That was this um, sort of, they decided it had been so successful overseas that they would have a Domestic Peace Corps. And I, I grew up in a very, you know, quite wealthy uh, suburb of New York City called Scarsdale. And so in our first uh, meeting of the Scarsdale chapter of the SDS, um, they, uh, <laughs> they were there and they attempted to recruit me for the Vencerramos Brigade. 
they were telling us how um, that uh, you know Comrade Fidel was having difficulty with his sugarcane harvest, was a, which was a perennial problem, and he needed people like us who supported the revolution to go down there and help him. And you know, I just knew that my parents weren't going to go for that. And it also seemed a little bit fishy. And it was. It turned out later, it was actually in the White House when I discovered that that whole program, the Venceremos brigades, had been recruitment for the KGB. And several, and some of the people who had gone down had been, one way I found it out was one of the people who had uh, been recruited and become a spy um, <clears throat> had, was recently arrested at that point. So anyway, that was my background. Um, I became, you know, I mean, I was just basically young and obnoxious, but became, I got close enough to what was going on to be very disaffected, <clears throat> especially when they turned violent. But, you know, I didn't really, I mean, become a conservative. Um, my cousin George was largely responsible for my uh, political conversion, but he was in the same process of conversion at the time. He was, a he was the one Republican in the family. We didn't know Republicans. That wasn't something, you know, they weren't the sorts of people that we hung out with, but it was sort of a, an art, historical artifact from the family. And he was the last one left, but he was a liberal Republican. He was writing for George Romney, um, people like that, Rockefeller, people like that. And um, it was really through his work on social policy, um, sexual politics, he had written sexual suicide. And then he had written about basically the effects of the social welfare programs on the family. And then he began to put it all together when people like Jude Winitsky and Art Laffer and all were just sort of surfacing, resurfacing all of these supply side ideas in the 70s and putting it together in this really magisterial book, Wealth and Poverty, right? So I was with him and would be reading his drafts as he was going through it. And um, it really, it spoke to me. I mean, it spoke to me because, you know, it's funny the things that actually, I was completely disaffected with the left, as I said at that point, but the idea of actually becoming a Republican was, it was just like, you know, going to Mars or something. It was an impossibility. So it, it didn't occur to me as a possibility, I guess I should say. So, um, but it was really that, you know, just how, you know, that economic growth is really a creative process and I could really resonate with that uh, idea and then just sort of seeing it all laid out. <clears throat> so that helped. And I remember actually it was one weekend I was up with him when he was, and he, you know, working on this draft and he got a letter from Ronald Reagan and this would have been 78 or something like that. And he lo looked at it and he said, I got a letter from Ronald Reagan. And so, you know, we opened it and it was just a, I've been reading because he would publish his, you know, sort of uh, his his chapters, his drafts in early form as um, articles um, at that time. And Reagan had read them and liked them and was writing to say how much he liked them. And we both sort of raised our eyebrows because we'd never considered Ronald Reagan. Well, George may have, I don't know, but I don't want to speak for him. But it was interesting. And so, and how I actually got to the... Um, <laughs> White House was the, uh, I was working for Saturday Review. We went bankrupt. I needed a job. I called up George. I said, hey, I think I want to become a speechwriter. He said, no, that's the last thing you ever want to do in your life. Do not write speeches. So I um, actually went down 
and it was uh, Tony Dolan. Well, it was Peter Robinson who got me hired, but it was, um, I spoke with Tony Dolan. He wrote the Evil Empire speech, a certifiable genius, and um, with all the eccentricities that go with genius classically, but one of the most important figures, I think, in the administration. And he connected me with Peter, and Peter was the lone speechwriter for, uh, for the vice president's staff, writing all of George Bush's speeches. And um, he, uh, he got me hired. I mean, he wasn't the one who actually, you know, George Bush was the one who made the decision, but he engineered it. So Peter and I ended up in the same, uh, same room together uh, for years because he then moved to the president's staff and I followed him about a year later. That's awesome. Well, I could talk to you for hours about your cousin because he's been a 39, 40 year mentor to me. Um, in fact, his book, Knowledge and Power here, he's quoted me in it. And for me, that was an absolute thrill to be quoted from the one author that I admire the most. But uh, uh, Josh, I got to ask you this. There's so many, so many speeches I want to talk to you about and, and Ed will have to carry this on, but give us the backstory to the Moscow State University speech. I, I know you flew over there in advance. I know you saw the setting, the Lenin bus, the mural of the Russian Revolution. And and you thought originally, we gotta get we gotta get rid of that, but then you changed your mind. What what was the backstory to that speech? Right. Yeah. Well, I went over about um, what was called the pre-advance, you know, before anyway. It was around um, I guess it was around March. So went to Moscow to scope the whole place out. And Moscow State University is in um, one of these, it's one of these five massive Stalinist um, buildings built sort of on the points of the star around, as if they're on the points of a star around Moscow. And I mean, it's really, you know, looking at it, it's really like out of some kind of science fiction dystopia um it's it's kind of, it, it's so you walk into it and there's this um there's this massive lecture hall and um looking at the stage there's the podium and behind the podium is this huge mural of the october revolution with the workers carrying red the red flags of the hammer and sickle and then in front of it this really gigantic bust, just, I mean, there are pictures of it. You can see just the head of Lenin, right? And um, just sort of scowling down. I mean, you, they could have made it seem a little bit more friendly, but I mean, scowling down at whomever is standing at the podium. And, um, and the way it was lit, and I swear, I'm not, you know, it looked like he had horns. So there, there we are, you know, in hell. <laughs> You know, like, right. And the thing was, at that point, um, and there, the backstory goes way back, but, um, but at that point, Gorbachev was very interested in accommodating Reagan. So he had basically told everybody, do what they want. We want this to be a success. That kind of thing just, you know, that kind of thing never happened. And it never happened, at least in my experience, where a speechwriter could start telling people, especially the head of Moscow State University, what to do. But 
they said, well, do, you know, they were going to do whatever we wanted. So I said, well, the first thing is um, we've got to cover over that mural. And he was like kind of upset. So we're not going to give a speech in front of, you know, um, <clears throat> the communist flag. And then he, um, he said, then I looked at it and I said, and is that like, is that bust movable? I mean, he said, you know, I said, well, like, can you, is, can you lift it? Is it bolted to the floor or can you lift it out? And he said, no, actually it's on wheels. So um, I said, well, yeah, ro you got roll it out. <laughs> you got to roll it out. And he was almost in tears. Um, and I felt a little bad for him, but, you know, it's, it seemed necessary. So he went off to confer with his people about how they were going to do this. And I sat down and looked at it, and um, I realized, well, the first line of the speech, which actually isn't the first line because they always insist on stuffing in all of the stuff about how great it is to be here and, you know, all of our student exchanges and all. But the first line was, you know, standing before the symbols of your revolution, I want to talk to you about another revolution that's sweeping the globe. I thought, oh, that's it, Right. So I quickly found him and I said, you know, it's okay, leave it, leave it in place. Because it, it, it would, I just could see how effective it would be. Not for anybody else, but for Ronald Reagan, I knew he would pull it off. And he, of course he did. So Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, hold that thought, Josh. I'm sure Ed's got follow-up questions for you on that. But folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. We will post full show notes with our conversation with Josh at thesoulofenterprise.com. And now, a word from our sponsors. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You 
You're tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, we are back with the opening of the author of the opening epigraph of our of our uh, show, the Moscow State University speech. And Josh, I wanted to ask you: were you were telling the backstory, but were you present at the speech when Reagan delivered it, or were you gone by then? No, I was. Well, I wasn't gone. I was still on the staff, but I was not. I was. I watched it on TV. So did it did did it live up to your what what exactly what you thought it was going to be based on you know the 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 this situation and the setting? You know, I honestly couldn't tell at the time. I was it was it was really hard for me to watch it um, because there there was so much invested in it that I, I barely watched it when it came out, and I had no idea what the reaction would be because usually, you know. The Washington Post, the New York Times did not react well to the speeches that I had written or any of us had written. So that was an un, um, well, a surprising um, response that it got. It was so favorably received. But that's because they fundamentally didn't understand it, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. Uh, so, and one of the things I, I noticed in, in watching the speech uh, again is that there were no applause lines, mostly because clearly most people were listening to it in translation. But then That's the right. applause at the end lasted lasts a good solid minute, maybe even a little bit more. They they were genuinely touched by the speech. Yeah, that was surprising to me as well. I mean, so I mean that it's what I would have wanted to have happened. But you know, the students at MSU that was that's the pinnacle. Right, that was the pinnacle in the Soviet Union. All it was the, nom- the the children of the nomenclature. They were the highest of high Soviet officials. You know, if you if anybody was going to be upset about the changes that were happening, it was going to be them. I wasn't at all certain that they would receive the message well, um, but they. I think it did speak to them. I, I think um, you know there was a sense that it developed largely because um, through all of his very, through a broad array of policies, including the supply side policies that had reinvigorated our economy, had made it clear that the Soviet Union's days were numbered, um, that it couldn't compete, which was the subtext of every line in that speech was, your days are numbered, you can't compete, you know, join the winning side here. Um, you'll actually enjoy it. And um, uh, I think that, you know, I think they were understanding that, you know, Gorbachev, it took him, you know, this, this idea. So, you know, revisionist history obviously didn't start nowadays. It's been going on forever. And uh, the only difference is that it's accelerated so that now it happens simultaneously to the event then it usually took them a while later to um, rewrite what had actually happened. But they never really understood what was going on um, in terms of the media. This idea that Gorbachev was the great reformer who wanted to democratize the Soviet Union is not right. That is not how we started out. What was extraordinary, not surprising, 
but extraordinary was that Reagan could see the opportunity there and helped take him from somebody who was really, you know, um, somebody who wanted to save this, the Soviet system and was, and at most wanted margin to marginally reform it, to make it somewhat more productive um, into somebody who was forced into a situation of effectively dismantling it. Um, but it was a very, it was a very, on a very personal level um, and also just through um, a very consistent approach policy-wise that he really forced um, Gorbachev into that position. I think it was Shevardnadze who said um, about Reagan's negotiating style, he takes you by the hand, very, you know, puts his arm around you, your shoulder, leads you to the uh, edge of a cliff and tells you to jump off. That was, and that, that was right. Have you ever heard from anyone who was present at that speech and many of the students who came back to you afterwards and, and talked to you about it at all? No, I haven't, but I have heard from people who um, became aware of it after it was given. So when the agreement was that they would broadcast it within the, the Soviet Union, that was the agreement. They did not do that, nor did they publish it later. <clears throat> but... Um, it did get out widely in Samistat. And I have heard from people who read it and um, were very, you know, it was the whole, by that time, it was clear that major changes were coming. But what are the real sort of um, heartwarming and heartrending stories are when you, you know, because we would often hear from many years after the fact from, um, you know, survived dissidents who had survived the system and came out to the West. And they would tell us how important the Reagan speeches were to them, that they had given them hope that it had all but been extinguished. Um, it, it was, you know, and that, those weren't really mine because I was a bit later. Those were the during the first term, um, particularly the things such as the evil empire speech and the speeches that Tony Dolan wrote, but it was like, it was just that the Reagan was the first person, <clears throat> I guess since Truman really, who had been willing to say this. Um, and it was, um, it was, a, it was that just the rhetoric in itself was a game changer. Wondering if uh, you said you've watched the speech on television, if you have any recollection of the, the Q&A afterwards, because I, that's also out there. And I, I watched that as as part of prep here. Uh, and, and if you don't have anything to say about this, I'll totally understand. But two things that struck me. One, it, they say he's going to stay on for 15 minutes and it was 35 minutes of Q&A. <laughs> And second is that this is late in Ronald Reagan's second term where the story is now that he had, quote, lost it. And it's yeah. clear from his ability to take the Q&A that was going on there that <laughs> there was no maybe he was a little bit slower than he was four years ago, but he was still on top of absolutely everything from policy standpoint and from a rhetorical standpoint. Yeah. Um, well, one, the, uh, the questions were, you know, they were all pre-screened. Yeah. But, um, <clears throat> but Reagan loved that kind of thing. And uh, he, was in, he stayed longer because he was enjoying it. Um, it wasn't, you know, wasn't for 
reasons of state or anything, 15 minutes would have been fine. He was clearly enjoying it. And I think he was, he wanted to talk to them directly. Um, there's no question about that. You could see that. Um, in terms of him losing it, it's, you know, um, I actually think it was Peter who, you know, this was the idea that, you know, he was lazy. He was, a, you know, he took naps. He wasn't really on top of things. And, um, you know, I think it was Peter who said, you know, so we brought down this. So we brought down the Soviet Union, revived the America, created the greatest expansion in uh, U.S. His, economic expansion in U.S. history. Pretty good for somebody who's only working part time. You know, I mean, it was he, he was. Um, <clears throat> but what I don't think people appreciate, except sometimes in the negative, when you see things falling apart in an administration, is how difficult that job is and getting it right is phenomenal. And he got it right, not just with the Soviet Union, but on the, the broad range of policy, time after time after time. And that meant being really focused and really with it. Um, so yeah, it just was not true. I do, I, you know, I do think he would, I don't think he was perhaps as sharp, you know, at the end of his administration as at the beginning. I don't think anybody would be, honestly, whatever their age was. But especially the way he handled Gorbachev was it was it required such nuance at the same time and, and really personal, um, just the ability to personally relate to him on a level that uh, would that worked. And that's not easy within these kinds of artificial situations and without much writing on it. At the same time, it's being absolutely firm throughout the entire thing. So, for instance, I mean, the, the, one of the key moments, obviously, was Reykjavik, right? So this is where, and this is, this is actually shows Gorbachev is where he was and, especially, you know, what he was thinking. So Gorbachev comes to Reykjavik and Reagan's there, and the whole idea is that they're going to have this massive reduction in nuclear arms. Everybody wanted it. It was going to, okay. So Gorbachev sits down, they go through the, you know, I think it was a couple of days, three days, I don't remember how many days of meetings. And um, they agree to this massive reduction in arms. It's like the greatest success in arms control history, uh, bar none. I mean, in nothing like that had ever happened before. And at the very end, he says, but it's on one condition that you give up Star Wars, the strategic defense initiative. And Reagan said, well, uh, no. We're not going to do that. We made that clear. And he, you know, explained what it was about. It was defensive. We'll share it with all. Nope. That was the one condition. Reagan said, I'm sorry you feel that way and walked out. And everybody around him, with the exception of a few of his advisors, but, you know, on the U.S. side, most of his advisors, of course, all of the media thought this was a public relations disaster because here Ronald Reagan had thrown away the chance for the greatest arms. It's exactly what Gorbachev wanted. He was trying to manipulate him. And, um, and in fact, I remember we went out, we were out on the trail in the, uh, out on, um, it was, I guess it was the 86 election. We went out campaigning and the response from the crowds, the positive response from the crowds this is like two days later, a few days later, 
was overwhelming. I mean, they always loved him, but it was, it was noticeably different. The American people got it and they supported him in that. But that took courage. That took fortitude. That's not somebody, you know, um, <laughs> at, the end of his, uh, at the end of his tether or um, suffering from uh, memory loss or uh, dementia. It's just no. not. Absolutely not. Well, rather than stuff one more question at you and give, give you only a minute, I'm going to jump to our break and perhaps pick it up with you in the fourth segment. But I want to remind our listeners that they can contact Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Ron mentioned the website, The Soul of Enterprise. We also have a Patreon channel, patreon.com slash TSOE, where you can hear the show without commercial interruption, as well as the fine banter between the commercials that you're not getting on the radio show. But right now, a word from our sponsor. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with former Reagan senior speechwriter Joshua Gilder. Josh, talking about the Moscow State University, you consulted with Yakov Smirnov for that speech? Oh, yeah. I mean... Tell us about that. Well, yeah, Yakov Smirnov was a, a Soviet Jewish emigre. I think he came over in the mid-70s, late mid to late 70s. And... Um, just hilariously funny. I mean, he was one of the, um, it, I think it, you know, his shtick became much harder with the fall of the Soviet Union because people lost interest, but it, you know, he, he would have you on the floor laughing, but I consulted with everybody. I mean, I don't think any of Yakov's jokes actually got in the speech. I put a lot in that just didn't survive the editing process. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I consulted with absolutely everybody. I mean, um, 
I talked to James Billington, who was, but yeah, he was the Librarian of Congress and you know wrote the icon. He was a, a Russia specialist. Um, but basically, it was you know it was hopefully skillful plagiarism. I mean, you know, it was like Art Laffer and Julian Simon and Warren Brooks, who Warren Brooks, I, you know. Yeah. I, I used to keep his book, The Economy in Mind, which, and I used the title in the, cause it's so perfect. Um, but I used to keep his book, um, on my desk all the time as a, as a primer because, you know, there was a lot in all of these books, but it just, it was about 220 pages of pure explication of supply side economics. I loved Warren Brooks. He was a great man. Um, uh, but, you know, all of that, Julian, it was all Julian Simon. It was um, George Gilder. It was um, all of them. And so I, I kind of thought of it, my, you know, in a sense, I, I was, what I was trying to do is in a very condensed form, give these students and this audience, this wider audience, a primer in supply side in free, real free market economics so they could really get it and speak to the heart of the issues that it was all, you know, what it was actually all about, which is in what they had been all about and why they didn't work, which was materialism. Right. Um, and why materialism is a, is a fantasy, right? You're, you're basing, it seems hard and fast, but it's actually a fantasy um, <clears throat> and is presently dissolving in front of your eyes, which you could see if you went out into Moscow because it was dirty and run down. And um, we were staying at the Rocio Hotel, which was built in another one of these Stalinist buildings. And this is 1988. And that's the, that at that time was the, probably the best hotel in Russia, in, in the Soviet Union. And half the food was inedible. You did not want to get anything except the chicken. And you weren't really sure about that. So anyway. Wow. <laughs> did did George look at the speech before it was delivered? No, no. Mm -hmm. But you know, I'd been there for years. I'd been recycling I'd been cycling recycling George's material through Reagan's speeches for years. I I was kind of the guy who did all the supply side. I mean, everybody was doing it, but like I and uh, uh, Ben Elliott, who had been a, was um, a really committed supply sider, and he was constantly um, just just ringing that bell in every speech we could. So um, that's excellent. That's how George gets to say the most quoted economist from Reagan. <laughs> it was well, it's one way, but you know, as I said, you know, Ronald Reagan reached out to George um, yeah. himself in I think I think it was seventy eight. George yeah. can correct me, but I'm pretty sure it was about 78. So it was Reagan who reached out to George and who was really inspired by his. But it was, it was George. It was um, um, that all Laffer. Of, you know, La yeah, all, of all those guys. Yeah. I, I know Jude there's a Winnetsky picture. was the name I, was, I, yeah, I blanked on briefly. I know there's a picture of Reagan with a copy of Gilder's book. I think he gave it to every one of his cabinet members. Yeah, um, that was, I think, in the first few days of the administration. Uh, well, yeah. it was his first cabinet meeting, and he handed out wealth and poverty to every one of his cabinet members. My dad read the Playboy interview with Gilder 
and told me you need to read this guy's book and i kind of poo-pooed it because i just read melton friedman and he finally bought me a copy i read it in one sitting and it changed my life <laughs> it just yeah. turned everything i was learning in college upside down in terms of economics um i have to ask you this too uh what Marlon Fitzwater said about the speech, and this, of course, is in three days in Moscow. I know Brett Baer talked to you about this, um, about this speech. But Fitzwater said, if anybody would ever appreciate Lenin having to spend an hour and a half looking at the backside of Ronald Reagan, <laughs> it would be the president. That I thought that was a great was line. Great. <laughs> and Josh, you wrote the Vatican speech, which I think was delivered about a week before the Berlin Wall speech that, that Peter Robinson had a big part in. Um, and you had a line in there that I, I do think is really good, the freedom that God gave us all when he gave us a free will. How was that wow. speech received? you guys really are like your historians of Reagan speeches. That's uh, well, well, <laughs> that's great. No, well, you know, it's rarely... Well, that's a great line. I mean, it's... So, <laughs> okay, so... That one has a back, they all have backstories, although sure. most of them have um, I've thankfully forgotten. But um, <laughs> in that case, yeah, it was part of the same trip. He made it, he stopped in the Vatican to talk to John Paul II before he went up to Berlin to give what what is now the most famous speech of the Reagan uh, presidency, the Berlin Wall speech. But I, in, um, in pre preparation for that trip, we had a meeting, all the speechwriters who were, you know, writing, which I think was almost all of us at that point, because there were a lot of speeches in any trip. <clears throat> and the one in the Vatican was not like that high profile. So I went over with Peter and Clark Judge and um, Tony Dolan and others. And we were sitting there in Dana Rohrbacher and we were all in the room. <clears throat> and... Um, I just asked him, I said, well, okay, so you're going to be talking to the Pope, right? I said, is there anything particular that you want to say about all these hopeful changes happening in, happening in the Soviet Union? And he, so everything good in that speech is basically transcribed verbatim from, wow. you know, okay, I, I worked a, th a few things around, but basically transcribed from what he then for he's proceeded to talk for just about five minutes. Um, and it was beautiful. And I was writing as fast as I could. So I put that, so I put that in the speech. It was about two pages, which is not a lot of words. I don't know. Maybe it's about 400 words or something. And um, the way it was done and then stuck on all the stuff that you had to put at the beginning of those um, speeches and all the, crap I've been told I had to have in the speech. I just like pushed to the end. <laughs> okay. So it was basically <clears throat> four pages with Reagan's two pages in the beginning. And then we, we, the staffing process is the, you send it out to each relevant agency or part of the white house that was overseeing it. In this case, it was a state department because it was a state visit. Right. And it comes back from the state department and, um, there are almost no changes in the whole thing except for those two pages that Ronald Reagan had basically dictated with two red X's through both pages. So I call up the guy who had done the, I forget who it was, but who had done the, you know, editing for the State Department. And I said, um, well, thanks for your help here. But like, so why, like, 
I'm just curious, why are you taking out those pages? And he said, well, we just um, thought all the references to God were really inappropriate. I said, the references to God, he's the Pope. <laughs> and, and the guy said to me, yes, but he's visiting the Pope in his function of, as head of state, not as head of the church. <laughs> so I said, thanks. Thank you very much. Good to talk to you. And hung up and, you know, kept it in. So, but, you know, it was, <laughs> that is what you, you know, I, I know Peter described to you the whole process by which basically people spent two months trying to take it to destroy the Berlin Wall speech. Okay, really, like ripping it apart. But the thing that they wanted out most of all um, was that line about tear down the wall. That just drove them crazy. And as he told you, if it hadn't been for Reagan's intervention, it would have come out, right? And but like Reagan had to insist on it staying in several times to keep it in the speech. It was, that was the most extreme episode perhaps, but it was like that with every speech. Except um, the Moscow state flew through pretty easily, didn't it? It did. That's true. That is yeah. actually the one exception probably. Josh, what is your, I, I think the Moscow is Reagan's best speech. Uh, it's a, I'll just go on the record saying that, but outside of that one, what is your favorite Reagan speech? Well, Peter's speech in Berlin is rightly, you know, famous. I mean, it was like, you know, interestingly, it wasn't recognized at the time. It just wasn't. Right. It was only when the wall came down that people yeah. understood with it. But it, it was, you know, it's a great speech. I think the most, you know, everybody there, and there were just, you know, every one of them made massive, major contributions. And these speeches, they may not like historically seem important sometimes, but each one was focused on a critical policy issue at the time, and they were essential to making them happen. That's how the Reagan administration worked. It led through its rhetoric. Um, and so people like Clark Judge, Dana Rohrabacher, who was actually closer to um, Ronald Reagan than anybody else had worked with him. He used to go around with, with a tape recorder recording every, uh, this is when he was governor of California, mm -hmm. recording everything that Reagan would say because they knew whatever he said would be misquoted in the press. So Reagan had been, uh, Dana had been with him longest, knew him, um, was really closest to him in terms of style. Um, ben Elliott, who was kind of this supply side guy who just with this force of personality insisted every speech was going to be a supply side speech pretty much um and tony dolan um and uh, and clark judge as i said um he was you know he was doing he right he was the one who um suggested to me this the whole section about um you know go into any um any town in america you know walk into any church it's basically running through what the in, the private institutions in a free society that support democratic government it's you know and it's the the kind of thing that later administrations actually didn't get when they thought well we'll give them the vote well they'll have an election and that's democracy you know so um clark was did brilliant work the most brilliant person on that staff who made the most um 
the most dramatic effect on history, and I think is probably one of the most important people in the um, in the in the administration was Tony Dolan. Mm-hmm. And um, from the beginning, it was his understanding of the Soviets and the way he um, framed it in the Westminster speech, <coughs> in the evil empire speech, and in numerous speeches along the way, um, which was um, critical to, I think, the success of um, Reagan's Soviet policy. Because Beautiful. it was really those speeches which let... You know, obviously it was the speeches backed up by action, but it was really those speeches that let the Soviets know that we understood them. We really got what they were about, and they weren't pulling the wool over our eyes, as they had done with every other administration. You got to write the victory. You got to write the victory lap speech. I love it. (laughs) Well, Well, that's kind of that's kind of what it was like because that was only possible because all of these other speeches. Yeah, uh, had yeah. done all the all of that work beforehand. Fantastic. Well, unfortunately, we're up against it, and uh, Josh Ed's going to take you home. But I just want to say thank you so much. This is just like I said, it's been a bucket list for me to have you on. Pleasure Absolute to be here. Thank you very to. much. Thanks for inviting. Uh, and me. folks, we'd like to remind you if you want to get a hold of me or Ed, send an email to asktsoe@verisage.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsor and Ed's employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing Hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. We're tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. We are back with the founding director of the White House Writers Group, Joshua Gilder. And uh, Josh, I want to ask you, uh, following up from the speech, how do you think Russia has done? Do you think they've just shrugged off one autocracy for another? Well, they shrugged off uh, one totalitarian regime for an autocracy. 
which is which is an improvement. Uh, <laughs> it's not enough of one. I mean, it is you know it it, um, it is too bad. But we the you know we didn't manage the transformation well. It's a lot of these things aren't binary. It's it's like a lot the way a lot a lot of um, policies are like presented. It's you're either for intervention or war or you're against it, right? But you know. You might be for the war, but if you get into a war and lose it or manage it badly, right, and create a bigger problem, that's not good either. That's bad. It might have been better not to go in, right? Um, not saying it wasn't better that the Soviet Union collapsed. That was an unalloyed good. Um, but um, we didn't manage the, the transformation. And uh, what happened was that all of the you know these assets were like gobbled up by these the what became the oligarchs and what putin is is that to some extent i mean he came in and he he reined them in it's sort of like the mafia as you described it you know they made an arrangement i will let you keep that all those things that you essentially stole in the name of private, you know, pretending it was privatization. You basically stole all of these resources. I'll let you keep it if you give me half. That's the deal, right? So it's corrupt. It's, um, it's a dictatorship. You know, you're, you only have more, you know, some rights as long as you don't um, offend Vladimir Putin or challenge the system. Um, they still have all of these nuclear weapons, but we're not at the, on the verge of nuclear war. You know, that is not a good place to be. It was not, you know, that was a, it was a really frightening time in that sense. There is no question. And um, it frightened me. It frightened Ronald Reagan, which people only have later appreciated, that he, he had, he, he was one of the, he believed in his soul in disarmament. He thought that this was an unnatural and impossible situation and something had to be do, done about it. The difference was he did it, right? Whereas everybody else who pretended they were all about disarmament made the situation worse. Time after time after time with these treaties that allowed the Soviets to become stronger in comparison to us and brought us closer to war every time. Well, we got about four minutes left. I want to try to to add a little levity to this. How do you think Ronald Reagan would have used Twitter? Oh my God, I haven't been asked that question. <laughs> um, I really don't. Uh, you know, I'm going to have to think about that. Um, I think he would have told a lot of jokes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he would have put the stuff that the speechwriters got ripped, or that the State Department ripped out back back in the yeah yeah, yeah exactly. I don't <laughs> Twitter. Oh my god. Um, I don't know. It's you know he he was a master of rhetoric, and mm -hmm. you know of the spoken word, and Twitter is probably the worst thing that's happened, <laughs> and of communication, right? And Twitter is probably the worst thing that's happened for people's ability to communicate with each other in the history of the human race. So I don't know how he would have responded to it. He would have made it work for him. Yeah. He, he would have responded. It's more complicated than that. And then posted a link to a big, long speech. <laughs> uh, maybe. <laughs> um, random curiosity question. Did you see, watch any of the series, the Americans? 
Yes. I started, <laughs> I started, that's the one where the, the spies, right? Yes. The, the spies. Yep. The mold. Nope. Um, yeah, I, I did. Um, <laughs> but I didn't stick with it. You didn't stick with it. Okay. All right. Just any, any thoughts on it that no, you didn't stick with it. So you must not have gotten too much into it. I, I didn't get it that much into it. Okay. I, 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 um, it did give a sense in part of just how, but not, not really enough. The movie that you want to watch is to really get a sense of the system. And, um, and with some pretty creepy echoes of where we are in this country right now is the lives of others about um, life in East Germany before the fall of the wall, um, where everybody is spying on everybody else, wives on husbands, husbands on wives, you know, neighbors on, on each other. And um, so it was, it was a bad evil system and it permeated every aspect of people's lives. Yeah. I so, just rewatched that about a month ago. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Great movie. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, it is. Uh, in fact, we, Ron and I have talked about it. William F. Buckley said it was the best movie he's ever seen. So Oh, I um, that. Yeah. Totally unfair question. We've got 90 seconds left. <laughs> what did you think of your cousin's article, The Huawei Test? Oh, my God. <laughs> I think I missed it. Okay. Well, we'll have to have you back on because. I'll read it and we'll talk about we it. We would have to have you back on because, honestly, it deserves its own show. <laughs> I'm sure it, it does. Everything you write <laughs> does. Um, <laughs> Well, this has just been absolutely great. We're so uh, pleased to have you on and uh, uh, wanted to thank you again for, for coming on today and, and sharing this with our audience. As we said to Peter Robinson as well, it's, it's like living with history. So uh, we, we really, we really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm living history. At least I'm living. So, okay. <laughs> but thank you very much. Uh, All right. It's been great you, to Josh, talk to you on. guys. Uh, All right, Ron, uh, what do we got coming up next week? Next week, we have John Tamney, author of They're Both Wrong. So that'll be really interesting. (laughs) All right. Well, I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the soul of enterprise, business, and the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific. We'll have John Tamney on, the author of uh, They're Both Wrong. And in the meantime, check us out at soulofenterprise.com. We'll have full show notes with our discussion with Josh. And, then, and if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe at barrisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend. 